0: This morning our text will be 1 Samuel 27, with two verses from chapter 28 brought in. It is still a short text, and it is an unusual text, an unusual story here that we will look at in just a minute. But if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is... Is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. First Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Akish. When Akish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremahelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, Lest they should tell about us, and say, So David has done." Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you. For you, O Lord, have the words of life. Lord, we ask that you would plant your word deep in our heart that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ as we hear it, and that we would long to be more and more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this is an unusual story. In this story, God appears not to be there. This text has more in common, it seems, with the book of Esther than the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. We might look at it and say, it is, after all, a godless text. God is not mentioned and our writer does not comment or give his perspective on what is going on in this chapter. You may recall that throughout 1 Samuel, God is very much front and center. And we are given insight into the actions that are happening. As our author says, when such and such was done, this was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And when such and such was done, this was good in the sight of the Lord. But here we have none of this. And so the question then for us as we come to a text that is thousands of years old. ...without God in it? How do we read it? What do we take from it? And I would put to you... ...that in this text... ...we can see what David is doing... ...and even more than that... ...there is insight for us... ...as to how we are to live our lives. And I'd like to approach this text... ...by asking three questions. First... What is your trust in? In what do you trust each and every day? Secondly, what are you focused on? Where do you look to find solutions? And then third and finally, where is your hope found? In each and every day, as you lay down in bed and you turn off the light, where is your hope found? Three questions. What is your trust in? What are you focused on, and where is your hope found? Well, As we begin to look at chapter 27, we see David, but David is a bit different than we're used to seeing him. Here David is overtaken by fear. Now, up until this point, we have been going at a breakneck pace. For nine chapters, Saul has been chasing David literally all around the hill, up and down the valley, and everywhere to try to find him. Several times, David has made only very narrow escapes. And not once, but twice, David has confronted Saul personally and asked him why he is being pursued. But now, the story changes some. Now, David decides it is time to leave Israel. Now, this is remarkable... For several reasons. The first is that it was just last chapter. Your eyes can just go up a few verses. In which David is pronouncing. His belief in the promise. That God will protect him. That his life is valuable in God's eyes. He had been criticizing Saul. Saying that Saul's men were trying to drive him out of Israel. And that this would be a horrible thing. He would lose the heritage of the Lord. But now he's ready to go. He had just previously, in the last chapter, said that God will take care of Saul. That he may strike him dead, or he may die in battle, or the ordinary course of events may take his life. But that Saul's days were numbered by the Lord, and the Lord valued the life of David. But now David is ready to leave Israel. Now this is not the first time David has left Israel You may recall in chapter 21, he went to Gath. But that time didn't work out so well, did it? He went by himself. And he only escaped the Philistines by pretending that he was crazy. But this time it's a bit different. David doesn't go by himself. He goes at the head of a small army. 600 men strong. And then... We also see that it is almost the population of a small city because all of the children and wives of these men are with him as well. It is easily about 2,000 people, very likely. So what causes David to do this? We might say that the pressure of life has finally gotten to him. He has finally gotten wound up so tightly that he realizes he's not safe and he needs a a pressure release valve. It could also be that he was concerned for all of his men and all of their families. It's not as if he's only responsible for himself. He now has to make sure that all of these men and all of these children are safe. It is not so easy to wander around the wilderness with children. Now... It's been some time since my kids were small, but I can tell you I still remember trying to walk around a store with just four children. And that's not easy to keep them in line to make sure they don't get into things they don't, shouldn't get into. Now imagine if you had, say, a thousand children and you're in the wilderness. That would make any aspiring king want to pull his hair out. And if we also think about it, that under this type of pressure that David is under for his own safety and for all of those who are around him, when we make decisions under pressure, we don't always make good ones, do we? Let me give you just an example that I think many of you are very familiar with. Let's just take Hurricane Harvey. Now you would think, as the hurricane came and the floods were coming... The question that would be raised would be, should we leave or should we stay? That's a pretty binary question, right? There's not a lot of nuance to that. Stay or go. But yet the pressure of the pounding rain and the reports that are coming in and the phone calls and the talking. There were so many of us that said, we've got to go. No, wait, let's stay. No, no, I think we've got to go. No, 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 I think we're going to stay. Oh, wait, call somebody, get the boat out here, we've got to go. Right? And it's because of the pressure beating down on us. It's one of the reasons that I never like to buy anything when a salesman is pushing me. I remember still the time when I went to buy our first minivan. And as we were looking at cars, the salesman came up to me and he kept pressuring me saying, What color? What color? And I said, I don't know what color. I've got to look around. No, really, what color? I said, You're pressuring me. I'm done. I walked away because I don't need that kind of pressure you make bad decisions and so what's happening to David here under this pressure is he is being gripped by fear look at verse one he seems certain that death is imminent now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul now this is very interesting Because if you remember chapter 26, verse 10, you will remember that David said that Saul would die, that either the Lord would strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. (coughs) That is the exact same word that David uses in verse 1. And it means to be swept away, like in a flood. So David has gone from Relying upon God to sweep away Saul, to saying, I'm certain the only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be swept away. He's gone 180 degrees. And so the pressure here has been so great that he's forgotten about the promise the promise that Jonathan repeated to him, the promise that Abigail repeated to him, the promise that even Saul acknowledged was true that he would be king. The pressure is so great that it made him forget about the protection that the Lord had just given him. The pressure is so great that it makes him forget his own words that the Lord values his life. And now what he says is, there is nothing good left in Israel for me. That's literally what he says. There's no good here in Israel. I've got to leave. Now, this is a remarkable change. And I want you to think about this for a moment. This is what fear can do to you. How do I know this? This is David. This is not any run-of-the-mill Israelite. This is David. And fear has so gripped his heart that he has completely forgotten the promises of God, the protection of God, and he has gone completely turned about, sure of disaster and death. Now what we need to understand then is that fear is real. You don't need to pretend that you're never afraid. Fear is... Is real. We all experience it. We can even be driven by it. So then the question comes to us from this story, how do we deal with a fear like this that grips David? Well, in order to see the solution, we have to look a bit closer at the problem. How does David get in this position? David gets in this position because he has been turning his fears over in his mind. Look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, he's been talking to himself, reinforcing his fears. He's probably been up all night saying, I'm pretty sure Saul's going to get me. Oh man, he's going to get me. He's never going to get up. He's going to get me. I don't know if I'm ever going to survive this. He's going to get me. It's gotten to the point where everything else around David, including God, has been blocked out. And and this can happen, can't it? Because if we're honest here, if we're being honest, we all talk to ourselves, don't we? Maybe not out loud all the time, but we all talk to ourselves. And what we need to realize is that we are our most influential counselor. Because wherever we go, there we are. And so you're always with yourself turning over in your mind thoughts, concerns, fears, hopes. And this is the problem for David. But the good news is that the answer is found in the same course. You see, what David should be doing and what we should do is remind ourselves of the promises of God and the protection of God and play that over and over and over again in our minds. Because what we focus on in our hearts will determine the direction that we go in. This is not just a matter of blocking out problems. You know, I don't know if you recall that ancient advice from the classic Snow White and how we were told to whistle while we work. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm involved in really hard, backbreaking, or stressful work, it does not help me to whistle. Now, maybe it works for dwarves, but I'm not so sure about people. And you see... The intention there is, well, if you whistle, you focus on the whistle and you forget everything else and everything will be fine. And that's not how it works. Oftentimes we do a version of that. Something is bothering us and we resolve not to think about it. To just block it out of our minds. No one mention it. I'm going to so not think about it. But that doesn't work, does it? Let's take an experiment here. Please don't Think of a purple elephant. Now, all of y'all just started it, right? That's what happens. You see, what we need is not blockage. What we need is something else to focus our minds and our hearts on. We need to be feeding our souls the truth about God, who He is and what He's done. Because the more we focus on our circumstances, the more we forget about God. And the less we see God, the more fearful we become. But the opposite is true. The more we focus on Jesus Christ, the more our actions will be directed by our knowledge of who Jesus is and what He has done and who we are in Christ. So let me say to you this morning, If you don't know Jesus, if you only know fear and you don't know how to get out of it and it seems to grip your soul, the answer is not found in trying to change events. It's not found in trying to manipulate your circumstances. It's not found in blocking out the world. The answer is found in Jesus. That you trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith That you know that He is the one who has made atonement for your sins. That He is the one that brings you to God. That He is the one that dispels your fear and gives you hope. For those of you who know Jesus, I encourage you this morning to seize the promises of God. Make them your own. When we read promises in the Bible, it helps us to insert our name. Where the Bible says, I have promised you, you should insert your name. Read the promise with your name in. It is for you. It's not generic. It's not for someone else. It is for you. Know that your life is not to be shaped by fear. But instead, by Jesus' love for you. The second question we must ask ourselves in this story is, what are we focused on? Now, what's going on here is not the same for David as in chapter 21. You may recall when in chapter 21 David went to Gath, he didn't exactly think this through. He didn't exactly say to himself, I wonder if it would be a good idea to go to the Philistines. I wonder if it would be a good idea to go with Goliath's sword on my back. I wonder if it'd be a good idea to go by myself with no help. And then when he got there, he realized he hadn't thought it through. Here, David is taking, again, the exact opposite tactic. He is thinking through and planning this meticulously. David is looking to himself to come up with a plan to keep him safe. Because you see... Practicality now seems to point to Philistia as the best place to go. Common sense would say to David, leave Israel, get out of Dodge. We have the hatred of Saul for David. We have the local people betraying David. We have the logistics of trying to keep all of these people together. And we can also imagine that David just wants relief from the pressure that's mounting. So David formulates a plan. He starts it in verse 1. He says, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David does a good job formulating a plan. He says, If I go to Philistia, Saul will stop looking for me. And you know what? He does. Look at verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. David's right. And then David says to himself, if I, can, I think I can convince Achish to take me in. Because now I'm not by myself. I've got a small mercenary army here that he might want to use. And you know what? That works too. We see Achish take David in in verse 3. David lives with Achish. And then David says to himself, Now, I want to get some flexibility. I can't be under Akish's thumb. I know what I can do. I can tell him that there's no reason that all of us need to be on the government payroll. Let me have a town, and we'll leave, we'll be close by, but we won't be on top of you, and you won't have to feed us and take care of us. And you know what? That works too. And then finally he says, now that I'm far away, what I can do is I can attack Israel's enemies and I can tell Achish I'm attacking Israel and he'll be none the wiser. He'll believe me. And you know what? That works too. Look at verses 8 through 10. David attacks the the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And every time he comes back, Achish says, where'd you get all the plunder from? And David says, well, uh, from Judah and from these allies of Judah and from these other allies of Judah. And that's just what Achish wants to hear because he gets some plunder and he says to himself, David will be my servant forever because the Israelites really got to hate him now. All of this looks like a brilliant plan. It is successful but it's not driven by faith. David is just looking to his own thoughts, his own schemes to come up with a plan. And we have, to be, we have to beware such success. Proverbs 14 puts it this way, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And David gets a glimpse of this There's a reason why we tacked on the first two verses of chapter chapter 28. You see, because David's plan not only works well, it actually works too well. Have you ever had that experience where you're trying to get something and even though you shouldn't, you tell someone a lie or you fabricate something and you think it'll work and it works so well that it gets you in hotter water than you were in before? That's where David is. Because Achish comes up to him and he says, you know, I love the fact that you've been raiding in Judah. I love the fact that you've been raiding the Kenites. You know what? We're about to go attack Judah. You're in our army. You're going to lead the way, David. Full charge. So now what does David do? Well, he answers in kind of a vague, noncommittal way. Well, you'll see what we're capable of, king. And I love the response. The king says, yes, I'll see what you're capable of and you could be my bodyguard. Now, this is like the old-fashioned cliffhangers. You're going to have to wait. Not till next week, but the week after that. Because the story stops there. It leaves David in the hot water because it wants us to focus on this, not on the results of what's going to happen. In chapter 29, we will see this play out. But... What's happening here is that David has been looking to himself and the problem is not that David is planning. Do not hear your pastor saying, never plan. Any of you that know me well know I would never give that advice. If you don't believe me, we can go to my office and we'll find the piece of paper that will tell you what sermon series I will be preaching in 2022. I've got it written down. I'm not saying don't plan. What I'm saying here is that David has put himself in a difficult place because all he's doing is looking at what's in front of him and trying to come up with a plan for the immediate. The problem is David isn't focused on the big picture. His scheme has worked well for the present, but what about the bigger picture? You know, there's more to life for David than escaping Saul. Is not there? He's supposed to be the king of Israel. (coughs) But what is David doing now by his actions? He is risking his kingship. See, David knows his actions will have consequences. We've already seen it twice in which he has said, I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Because if I kill Saul, that will color my kingship forever. How do you think the people are going to take it if David is found attacking Israel and burning their cities? Do you think they're going to want him as their king? David's lost that big picture. He's only looking at what's in front of his nose. He's actually in more danger now than he was when he was running from Saul. This tells us That we cannot live our lives simply trying to get past the next hurdle. What that does is it leads to an obsession with our problems and with ourselves. All we're doing is thinking about the immediate problem in front of us. And it leads to what I call if-only theology. If only I were married, things would be better. If only I had a better job, things would be better. If only I could get relief from this problem, everything would be fine. But you know, that's not how we're to live. God doesn't take us from a series of if-onlys to another series of if-onlys. He has a big plan for our life. That we are to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do is we need to have Bible discernment. Now remember, the wisdom of God does not tell us To ignore our circumstances and our problems. They're very real. But what it does do is it tells us to view them in the larger context of our lives and in the larger context of God's Word. Proverbs 3 5 puts it this way Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, we know this verse well, but don't let the verse say something to you that it's not saying. Our good friend Ralph Davis puts it this way. Note, the text does not say, don't use your understanding. Don't lean on it, is what it says. Lean on the Lord and use your understanding. Don't lean on your understanding and use the Lord. There's an important difference here. Wisdom is the application of our intelligence within the context of God's Word and truth. Well, the third thing that this story does is test us. It tests us to where our hope is found. You know, Old Testament narratives are written, Paul says, for our instruction. But the truth is, as we read these stories, we can't help but get caught up in the stories, right? And this is David's story, isn't it? We see him, we see his bravery. We see his faith. We see his deliverance. And we instinctively want to be like David. And as a matter of fact, oftentimes, the application of these kind of narratives runs something like this. Be like David. Who's your Goliath? What's the Saul in your world? And we think that somehow... We're supposed to emulate David as if he is the one that we are to be like. But this story changes that up a little bit, doesn't it? We see a different kind of David. Now, we've seen David teetering at the edge of disaster, right? He gathers up the troops. He's ready to go and find Nabal and kill him and all the men with him. But he is brought back from the edge by Abigail. This is the first time we see David fall off the edge. It will not be the last time, for those of you that are familiar with the story of David. He will sin again and again with disastrous consequences. But here is the first time. And as we look at this, we can handle David the raider. We can handle David the soldier. But the question is, can we handle David the killer? Look at verse 9. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. Is the David, we expect, a slaughterer of women? Now... Perhaps David was trying to make himself feel better about this by saying to himself, I'm only attacking Israel's ancient enemies. When the text says that these peoples were from the land of old, it means that they were there before Joshua came into the land. And you remember that Joshua was given a command to clear out the land entirely, to spare no one, so that no Canaanites would be left in the land. And it may be that David, in his mind, is thinking, I'm doing God's work. But there are two problems with that line of thinking. The first is, what did Joshua and Israel do with the animals and the cattle and the booty after they had destroyed a people? They destroyed it entirely to the Lord. They didn't keep it. They certainly didn't use it to bribe a pagan king with, which is exactly what David's doing. The second thing, is that David is going about this without a command from God. He is simply doing this to protect himself. He tells us as much. I can't leave someone alive because they're going to go and tell on me. Now, I don't know about you, but in my family and in my circles, when someone does something, To prevent someone else from revealing the truth about an action I've taken that's wrong. That's not a good thing. And that's exactly where David is right now. You see, the truth is that this story is more complex than it seems at first glance. We want to sympathize with David's problem. Yet, it doesn't appear that he's acting properly or even acting the way we know David acts. And as a matter of fact, David has put himself in this position, in this situation, where he has to make this decision. If he hadn't have gone to the Philistines, he would not have to attack these towns. He would not have to kill these people. And so what happens, I think, to us is we can actually become disappointed in David. You know, we can give him that kind of mom look. You know the mom look? Well, I'm just, I'm just very disappointed in you, David. I, I just, I thought you knew better than that. Right? And when mom gives you that look, you sink about eight feet into the ground. Right? You feel way worse than if she would have yelled at you. We're disappointed. So, why then do we have this text? Why does the Bible want us to be disappointed in David? And the reason The Bible wants us to be disappointed in David is so that we are not depending on David, but we're depending on God's grace. You see, this text is included for our instruction. Just because the story is uncomfortable does not mean we don't need it. And it is natural for us that we would get disappointed in David at some time. Because, after all, he's a sinner just like you and me. Now, do you remember the first time That you were disappointed because your parents didn't know everything? When you realize that? Shh, don't tell my kids. Did you remember that time? It's hard, isn't it? But you realize that they're people. They're human just like you and me. And that's Bible people are just like you and me. We have to remember that David is a sinner. Abraham really did risk the life of his wife, Sarah. Moses really was a murderer. Matthew really was a thief. John really did want to lash out at others in anger. You see, our heroes of the Bible should not be our ultimate hero. The Bible is not afraid to do this because it doesn't trust or depend on man, but in God. Our hope is not found in David. Our hope is not found in our cha- ourselves changing to be more like David. Our hope, and David's hope, is found somewhere else. Our hope is found in the one who never sinned. Our hope is in Jesus, who brings grace to us, And so this text is here to teach us, let your disappointment in David drive you to Jesus. And in that end, this godless text shows us exactly what we need. The Lord our God. Let's pray.